Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. I'm going to you know, kick off tonight with a, a little bit of a story. Um, when I was younger... I grew up going to church, and I have a very unique story. I, I walked away from God for a little bit in period of time in my life as a teenager. You've never heard that story before. That's very unique. But when I was a kid, I went to church, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I grew up, and my parents are tithers, and that's always been my experience is just to grow up as a, as a tither. That's, that's what we did. And so I remember being in church when I was a kid, and the, the, uh, the, the bucket would start to make its way down the aisle, and it was always really exciting. I don't know why, but I would say, hey, mom, mom, give me, give me some money, you know, so I can put it into the bucket when it comes by. Mom would open up her purse, give me a couple of coins, and I'd take those coins, and when it came back, that was my chance. I put the money in there. It's always fun giving away other people's money. And, and so I put, you know, my mum's money in there and I passed it on. And I guess I did, that did, did something inside of me. Maybe it was the repetition. Maybe it was the uh, constant experience or exposure that I got to that. But to me, it just made sense that I could contribute out of what I had and, and, and help to build God's house. Well, as I told you, uh, I walked away from God for a, a long period of my life. But when I was 21 years old, I came back to God. And if you don't know my story, just really briefly, like when I came back to church, it took me about 12 months to really get what God was trying to do. So I would be the kind of person that would arrive late. I, I would arrive uh, every Sunday morning and quite often I would go straight to church from wherever I was the night before. Didn't go home, didn't take a shower, uh, arrive late and just if I was out I'd catch the taxi straight to church you know and, and so I'd walk in and I'd sit down at the back and here's the thing you know my life during that period was actually a mess that I was trying to get on track but the, the, the weird part about all of this is when I went back to church I couldn't get the rest of it right but I started tithing. Isn't that weird? Because like oftentimes I think like people come to church and the last thing that they want to part with is their money. And yet for me, I was coming back to church and I'm like, oh, this old thing. Yeah, I remember this. Great. Let, where do I give? Sign me up, you know? And, and, and so that's what I did. I just, as soon as I came back and, and the thing was that money never had my heart as a kid, didn't have my heart as a teenager, certainly not as an adult, you know, it didn't bother me, you know? I just realized that that was something that God wanted me to do. And so that's my background. That's my exposure. That's my experience. You know, that's how I began and how I started to look at things. And so, um, Today, what I'm talking about is, is money because money matters to God. Now, tonight, I am going to get my teacher on. All right? I'm glad you sound excited now. So I'm going to get my teacher on. Here's what you're going to have to do. You, you, you need to listen because I'm going to move through as much as I can to help unpack this as best as I can for you. And I want you guys to listen in. So let me start by saying this. In the parables that Jesus shared, 16 out of 38 parables were on money. In the Gospels, one in 10 verses is on money. And the reason why that is, is I think it's got nothing to do with money and everything to do with your heart. See, Jesus was most famous for quoting or for saying this. He said, you can only ever have one master. And I think that Jesus understood that if money was ever to get hold of people's hearts, then it would totally disrupt their calling. It would totally send them off in the wrong direction, you know? And if you find that money is mastering you, then it's going to have a degree of control over your destiny, over what, you know, God might want to do through you and in you. You're supposed to master your money, not let that master you. And I think when it comes to this stuff called money, firstly, uh, what we 
do with it is very spiritual. Okay, it's very spiritual. I think just like prophecy is spiritual, well, so is giving. Giving is a spiritual thing too. And that's one of the things we learned last week. And the, and the other thing is this, is that it exposes your values. You know, you, it might be a surprise to you, but what you give to, you actually care about. And so, you know, that, that might come as a revelation. But if you're trying to think tonight, what should be the thing then that I should be giving my money to? Well, I said it last week. Jesus has prepared a statement for his people. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That is a priority statement. That is something that God wants you to do, which is to prioritize his kingdom above everything else. And if it's almost like as if you put that thing in there in the place that it's supposed to be, then God's going to use that and he's going to build his kingdom. And he's going to build his kingdom through the people that put his kingdom first. That's how this whole thing works. So before I preach this message tonight, what I did is I spent about 12 months researching. Congratulations, you get it in about 40 minutes. But I spent... I spent 12 months reading. I spent 12 months researching. I've done so much reading. I met with Bible college lecturers. I met with Bible college principals. I met with pastors from other churches. I went to, uh, I went to my, my own board of, of management here. And, and I said, hey, just out of interest, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to the subject of money, how do you guys approach it? I said, who in here is a tither? Like, all hands, 100%. Everyone, I see that hand. I see that hand. You know, everybody is putting their hand up and they're saying, that's who we are. And so, so my experience and my background is I tithe. What has our church always done? And that's always what we've done as a church and the, and the leaders of it too. They've always tithed. And if you're here and you're new to church, I, I just want to let you know something. If you're new to church, you don't know Jesus, you are off the hook tonight. You don't have a thing to really really think too heavily about you know tonight as I as I share this message as I said I'm just sharing this message with people that are followers of Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus this probably applies to you this is going to apply even more to you if you call bright church your home church so I, I, I hope in that, that that some of this is really going to help you and, and, and stick in in your mind let me begin with saying this right now for those of you that wouldn't be aware the word tithe simply means a tenth what it means. It just means a tenth. Or another way to think about it would just be, say, 10%. And when I say it means 10%, you say, of what? And biblically, under the law in the scriptures, in the Bible, the way it's presented, biblically, the tithe was food. It wasn't money, it was food. It was produce that came from the land. In fact, there are so many scriptures. I'm going to read this first one to you. It comes out of Leviticus chapter 30. It says, Every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's and is holy to the Lord. Now you can, there are so many scriptures on what tithing is actually all about and what it's meant to center around. And every one of them is going to say that it's food because to be considered tithe, there was a couple of things that were really important. First of all, it had to come from the holy land, which was within Israel. The other thing that it was is it was food. It was just, you know, what they harvested from their property. And just to explain to you how this whole system worked, right, this worked to support the priests under what we call the law. Now, if you're new to church and you don't know what the law is, let me just take a minute to explain it to you. The law was 613 commandments that God gave to the nation of Israel, and this was their way to achieve their own sense of righteousness. In other words, if they could do all of these things perfectly, then they would be truly righteous. What it did is the opposite. It actually pointed out to everyone that it was impossible to be self-righteous, which is why we need Jesus to die on the cross for our sins 
sins because we're not perfect. Look at the person next to you and say, you're not perfect. Just do that right now. Okay. So the thing is, if you're going to be really honest tonight, every single person in this room, okay, don't enjoy it that much. You know, like they, the guy, they know that they're not perfect, right? You know, everyone knows, right? But, but this is the thing where if we're going to be really honest, we know that we're not perfect, right? And so because we're not perfect, what we need is Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. Listen to this point. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's not one thing that you can add to your salvation. Not one good work. Jesus has done it all. Jesus has won it all. That's what the gospel uh, is all about. But uh, let me explain to you what this, this thing called the tithe was and how it supported the priests, right? So there would be the Holy Land of Israel, and then they would uh, tithe from their properties, and so they would take the food. So there would be a harvest of food, and there was and and the uh, eleven tribes were over, able to own land. One tribe called the Levites were not allowed to own land, but they were allowed to work the land. And so because the Levites were kind of like God's government, remember they didn't have a king, they didn't have any external government, the tribe of Levi, that was a, part, a big part of what they did. So 12, 11 tribes out of 12 can own land. They take the tithe and they have 100% of the tithe. And then everyone from those 11 tribes would take 10% of everything and they would then go and give that to the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi would receive that tithe in, in cities that were around Jerusalem. And in these cities, they had huge storehouses to contain the tithe that would come in. Because it's, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of food that's sort of coming in. The Levites would receive that tithe in those cities that were around Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself was the holy city, but not a, a city that would take up and store the tithe. And so the tribe of Levi would then take a ten, another 10% of what they had been given. So they they tend to take 10% of that. And then they go and they give it to the Levitical priests. Are you with me so far? Let me start again. I don't want to lose you on this point. 100% of what is taken from the land, right? Then they tithe 10% of that. 10% of that goes to the tribe of Levi. They give it to the tribe of Levi. They take that and say, we're going to separate out a further 10% from that. They take that. They give that to the Levitical priests. That supplies them so they don't need to do anything else. And they can take that to the holy city in Jerusalem and administer the sacrifices and everything that they were supposed to do so that they could atone for the sins of Israel. This is how the system was set up. It was set up in such a way that it would enable, would enable this group of people called the, the Levites and the, and the Levitical priests to be able to do their jobs, okay? Now, sometimes they did their jobs really well. Sometimes they did not do their jobs so well. And there is a scripture in Malachi that I want to read to you. And this is a scripture that you would often hear when it comes to tithing. This is what it says. A little heading at the top of uh, this passage of scripture here in Malachi chapter 3 says, robbing God. It says this in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, what that scripture is about when he says open heavens, it's not about God making it rain. That's not about money. He's not opening the sky and money is just falling down on everyone. It's rain. And the reason why you need rain is when the tithe is food, you need rain to produce that. Now, this letter 
called Malachi is actually written not to the people of Israel, but to the priests who are not doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. The nation of Israel or Israel, were taking the tithes, separating out the 10% from the 100%. They gave it to the Levites. But what happened after that is the Levitical priests were doing two things that were really, really bad. Number one, they took from all of the offerings that people gave, they were giving God their worst offerings, the sick, the lame animals. They also didn't give him the best produce. And they were only supposed to get 10% from what the Levites received and they were taking more than what was given to them. They were bad priests, you know? And what you need in church is good leaders with integrity that will do the right thing. These guys were not doing the right thing. And so in this, there's a whole heap of curses that are actually in this for these guys if they don't tithe. Now, here's what's interesting. A lot of grace-filled, Bible-believing teachers will say that if you don't tithe, that you will receive receive a curse on your finances and all your stuff for not tithing because that's what comes out of this passage. I don't really believe that because Jesus became our curse and he makes us righteous, not because we are, but because he was and he gives that to us. The word that we use for that is called justification. So I don't really subscribe to that. To me, it just doesn't seem to make sense. But I want to tell you some strange things about tithing. In order to, are you guys with me so far? I told you I was going to get my teacher on tonight, all right? So here's the thing, right? There are three tithes, not one. The first tithe is the one I've just been telling you about. The second tithe was a festival tithe, and they had like a forced holiday. They would have to take the tithe, set aside 10%, and then they would all go to Jerusalem and just have a big old party. Then there was a third tithe, and this was a tithe to the poor. And this was three and a third percent. Now, this is weird, and I don't understand why they did it, but they did. They would split that third tithe over three years. I don't understand. It's meant to be a tenth part. I don't know why they split it over three years, but they did. And so the third tithe was split over three years, three and a third percent, which was essentially their welfare system for the poor because they didn't have a government set up like anything else. So that kind of makes a lot of sense. Now, the thing that we need to figure out is what principle of everything I just told you could be, if it's possible, carried forwards into the New Testament. What are we going to take from everything I just told you and apply to today so that, you know, we, we, we either tithe or how, or how do we support the church and, and, and how is it supposed to work moving forwards? Well, in order to understand that, here's another thing that you need to know. There were three parts of the law. So there was the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. God's moral law would be things like maybe the, the, the Ten Commandments, the treatment of people, and the, and the ceremonial laws would be a whole heap of other things that are to do with supporting the Levitical priests. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, God's moral eternal law continued through the cross. But the civil and the ceremonial parts of the law were fulfilled and they stopped. So if we can figure out where the tithe sits, then we know what makes it through the cross into the New Testament. You with me so far? All right, here's some interesting things about tithing. Uh, The poor didn't tithe. How about that? The poor didn't tithe. In fact, the, the tithe was a system that was set up to help the poor. 
In fact, when it, when it came to the way that they would harvest, they would actually go to the land that they owned. If, if, if you were blessed enough to be able to have lands, not everybody had it. But, but what they would do, do is they would harvest from their property and they would leave the fringes of the property where the fence line was, not going too close to the fence line, fence line and leaving the fringes for, and I quote, the poor to come and glean from what was left around the edges. And they left that part on purpose. Here's another interesting thing. When they did tithe, they didn't tithe on everything that grew on the land because they only counted the tithe from what they personally harvest. And so, you know, whatever was left on the fringes of the property for the poor, that didn't count. And they wouldn't consider that part of their tithe. They would only do the tithe on the part that they actually brought in for themselves. In fact, let me read a scripture to you. This comes out of Deuteronomy. This is in chapter uh, 24 and verse 19. It says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field... You shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. It's almost as if God really cares about the poor, isn't it? It's almost as if he is totally fixated on the, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, that, that he's really has a lot to do with this. I just think that that's interesting that the poor didn't tithe, but it existed solely to help them. By the way, they were still, people that didn't own land, they still gave, but they gave free will offerings. And yes, sometimes that was money, but it wasn't produce from the land. How could it be they didn't own anything? Here's another interesting fact. Under the law, uh, the tithe didn't start till Israel entered into the promised land. And you can read this scripture out of Deuteronomy 12 verse 19 that says, you shall continue to tithe while you stay in that land. See, for it to be tithe, it had to be from the holy land. So it makes sense that if I'm tithing here because I'm in the holy land, but if I leave that place... Can it continue to be tithe? I don't know. It's kind of interesting. It doesn't really look like it's supposed to be. Here's another interesting fact. The festival tithe could only be eaten in Jerusalem. So you take 10% of, of whatever you harvest and it was, you'd set it aside and take it to Jerusalem and have that big old party. And here's a really interesting thing. You could exchange the tithe. Okay. You could exchange that food for money. And I quote, to buy strong drink. Yep. Who wants to be a tither? I really felt I'd have more support here tonight, but I'm not even going to deal with that, you know. I said this to Zach Hooper, our business manager, and he said, oh, so was that thing, that festival, that's kind of like schoolies. I'm like, it's not... It is not like schoolies, Zach Hooper, you know, but, but, you know, you could exchange what you had for money to buy strong drink. Now, all of this is interesting, but the question is, is this thing called tithing, is it under law or is it under grace? Is it old covenant or is it new covenant? And it's really important to figure this out. So let me tell you this, how you read the Bible is very important. Okay? And, and there are different principles that we use to interpret and understand the Word of God. And what, the word that we would use to describe how we apply those principles is the word hermeneutics. 
Here's what you need to understand. You have a bias when you read the scriptures. You read it as a person that's your age in your city, in Australia, contemporary time. But you've got to understand that this was, when it was written, oftentimes what we're reading was sent to a specific group of people. And when we start to wrap our heads around what was going on in the time and the place, it starts to bring through the meaning of what the scriptures really said. So there is a hermeneutical principle called the law of first mention. Here's what it means. The first time we see God doing something, he is setting that up as a model so that we see that, understand what he wants, and then we repeat it. It's called the law of first mention, you know, and it's God setting up an ordinance for the future. An example of this would be uh, marriage. Say, you know, like Adam and Eve, they were in the garden. And then if you know the scriptures, when, when you know, they, they say there in Genesis, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. If you start to read it, it's actually indented in your Bible and separated out. It's like this little part that's separate to everything else. It's actually a song and it's part of a ceremony, which is really where we can see that God very clearly set up as in the ordinance of marriage that a man should marry a woman and really full stop that's it so that's how that works now the the reason why i'm saying this is that if we can figure out where the first tithe occurred and if the law of first mention applies then that's going to give us a great understanding of whether the tithe is supposed to sit under the law or outside of the law here's why this is very important if the tithe sits outside of the law then even if the law is fulfilled and stopped, if it's part of the ceremonial or civil parts of the law and those things stopped, if the tithe sits outside of the law, then what it can do is go around the law and land in the New Testament. And what that means is every single one of you, if you're a follower of Jesus, should be giving 10% of your income to church today right now. God, you actually, it doesn't even belong to you. It totally belongs to God. So you see, the implications are actually pretty important. We need to figure out whether the tithe sits here or does it sit under the law. So, so let me tell you a story because I can tell you where you really you start to read about the tithe for the very first time. 430 years before the law was even written, we read about a man named Abram who tithed, gave a tenth part. He tithed to another man named Melchizedek. And I'm going to spend just a few moments on this guy called Melchizedek and walk you through this story because who Melchizedek is matters so much to whether tithing applies or not, okay? And, and let me give you the rundown. I'm going to give you the background of this story first, and then I'm going to read some scriptures. But let me explain it to you, and I'm going to get right to the exciting bit. There are two groups of kings. One group of kings defeats the smaller group of kings. The larger you know, kings with the larger kingdoms, they defeat this smaller group of kings. When the kings were defeated, they, the, the superior kings, they took the spoils of the land, they took people, they kidnapped people, and they, they was taking those back and, and, and going back to their own land. One of the people that they kidnapped was a man named Lot. The man named Lot had an uncle named Abram. Abram loved Lot, and then he suddenly realized that he uh, needed to go after him and to get him back. So Abram 
Abram says, I'm going to get, take 318 of my men and get some of the men from the local tribes and I'm going to declare war on the five kings that took my nephew and we're going to go and get him back. That's exactly what they do and they launch an attack by night. They defeat the superior kings and they take all the spoils that were being carried off and all the people and they were bringing him back to the land where Abram lived. Up along the way back, as they were going back, they have this encounter with a guy named Melchizedek and I'm going to read that scripture to you right now. So this comes out of Genesis chapter 14 in verse 17. It says this, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet with him in the valley of Shavar, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed them and said, blessed be Abraham or Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And be blessed God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now there's no actual dialogue between the two guys here, but it says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ana, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. Really important scripture. I'm going to focus in on this because depending on who this guy Melchizedek is, is going to have a lot to do with whether the tithe sits outside the law or whether it sits inside the law. This is a, this is a big deal. Um, I'm going to tell you a couple of things out of the story that might not appear to be so obvious on the surface. Number one, tithes according to the law was never the spoils of war. So this is actually a very different kind of example, but it was never the spoils of war. In fact, in Israel, they treated the spoils of war completely differently. So when they would win a battle and they had 100% of the spoils of war, instead of tithing 10% and giving that to the Levites, they would tithe 1%. And 1% would go to the Levites. The Levites would then take the spoils of war and they would take 10% of that. So like 0.1%. And they give that to the Levitical priests. This is a very different example to how God set up his tithing system to support the priests so that they could administer the sacrifices. And that's just, it's just a different example altogether. But here's what's really interesting. The law of the land at that very time determined and, and declared that should you fight a battle in a land, there was an Arab war custom that you would give 10% of the spoils of war to the presiding king over that province. It was an Arab war custom. In fact, the Israelites, they did not invent tithing. Tithing existed for a long time. No one would dispute this. Tithing existed long before it was part of the law. And we see this happen repeatedly. In fact, did you know that in Jesus's day, that Rome continued this practice? And so the Jews in Jesus's day would give 10% to Rome. They would give 10% to the, the king of the province, right? Which at that point was King Herod. So they give 10% of what they've got to King Herod. And then they have the first tithe, the festival tithe, and the tithe to the poor. No wonder they hated the tax collectors. They were already in excess of 40%. And the tax collectors were taking even more than their share and lying about it to the Jewish people, which is why they just hated the tax collectors so much. And we see this thing happen all the way through. And so I thought, that's kind of interesting, you know? Like, was 
Abram really tithing a tenth to Melchizedek because he was this intermediate person that was between God and people and that's why he tithed? Like, what was that all about? Well, to know that, you have to kind of figure out who Melchizedek is. And Melchizedek is this character that seems to be shrouded in mystery. Who is this guy? It's like trying to figure out who he is. And and a lot of people have a lot of different theories about who he is. But if I just, just stick with the scriptures and read what the scriptures say about who Melchizedek is, we start to find some really interesting facts. How about this? His close ally and friend who is in this story with Abram after they've defeated the kings is the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom and Melchizedek are obviously quite close. In fact, what a lot of commentators will say is that because Melchizedek didn't directly fight in the battle, and at the end of that scene, we see the king of Sodom with celebrating with Melchizedek, it is likely that the king of Sodom was his delegate in that battle. Now, if the word Sodom sounds familiar to you, it's probably because it's a pretty famous story in the Bible because five chapters after this, God destroyed the cities of, God, uh, of um, Sodom and Gomorrah because they were so morally backwards and they wouldn't repent of what they were doing. So he destroyed the cities. And I started to think about this. I'm not so sure this guy Melchizedek is as righteous as we think he's supposed to be. Why would he keep the company of someone that was so morally backwards only to destroy that city five chapters later? I think who we think Melchizedek is oftentimes can be interpreted a little bit wrongly. In fact, if Melchizedek was looking for someone who was morally virtuous, why would he not take Abram, who is called a friend of God, who is the father, the founding father of their faith? It makes more sense that Abram would be his delegate. So there is something about the story that just doesn't quite make sense. We read his name and it says the translation of his name is King of Righteousness, but that doesn't mean that he was. That was the translation of his name. And here's what I can tell you. I really don't think he is the pre-incarnate Christ as so many people have said him to be. Do you know that there's a lot of people that say Melchizedek was Jesus in bodily form before he was born of the Virgin Mary? You know, who is this person that is this Melchizedek, this king of righteousness and, and king of peace? I don't think that's who he was at all. And we go, hang on a second. He was meant to be the priest of the most high God. And in fact, it says that he was the priest of this guy, of this God, who he also declares to be the possessor of heaven and earth. Would it then shock you to learn that the term most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, was a very common phrase to describe the God Baal, the false God Baal? And as I start to read this story and and his friendship with the king of Sodom and the uh, Arab war custom at the time, I start to look at this and I think, I don't think that this guy is as righteous as he appears to be. But the, the scriptures say more than just this one passage. There's not a lot said about. There's not a lot being said about Melchizedek. But 
you know, they're a two passenger. Isn't that kind of odd that if you'd think that if Jesus came back in bodily form, that they would spend a, a bit more detail on this guy called Melchizedek. But really, we just read him about him in Genesis and then in this next letter called Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, I, I want to read a passage of scripture to you. And this is really important. This is Hebrews chapter seven and in verse one. Now, this is what it's going to tell us that Melchizedek resembles Jesus, that he's a type of Jesus. And you know how I told you that we use different principles of interpretation to understand the scriptures? Well, this is what we would call typology. And typology is when God is communicating a point by using a type of something to communicate something completely different. Let me read to you out of, uh, out of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. It says, For Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, remember this, by translation of his name. I think that's in there for a reason, because they're not saying he was completely righteous, but by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, because that's what that word meant. Here's where he starts to get really mystical. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, when people read that scripture, the most common thought is, is that he, he is uh, no father or mother. That must mean that God made him a full-grown man out of nothing. He's got no mom, no dad. God has made him just straight away, right there. There he is, Melchizedek, right? And I thought, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Actually, you have to start to look at who this letter was written to and the reason why it was written. If you want to know who the letter was written to, the dead giveaway is the name of the book, Hebrews. It was written to Hebrew people. And the reason why this letter was written in the first place is because even for years and years and years after Jesus had died on the cross, and remember, the gospel means this. Just to bring it back home, remember this, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is you can't add anything to your salvation. He died for your sins, nothing you can add to it. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ, right? Now you, in this generation, at this time, understand that. But you have no idea how hard this was for the Hebrews. They had it, had it ingrained in their heads for so many years. The law, the law, the law. In fact, they couldn't even let go of it. And they kept bringing the law into everything that they did. As you start to look across the New Testament, you'll find this on so many occasions. Paul is writing and saying, hey, stop these guys from coming into the church and saying, yeah, you're saved by grace through faith, but you need to obey the law. You need to get circumcised. This is all this stuff is super important, you know. And Paul is saying, no, 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 listen. The old covenant is completely gone. The new covenant is completely embraced. It's none of that and all of this. There is no works, only grace. That's what Paul's trying to explain to them so many times. And right now as we read this book called Hebrews, he is using Melchizedek as a type, to, as a key to help explain to the Hebrews who Jesus really is because Jesus is the true priest and king and he's trying to explain it to them. That's why he uses this example. So when we read that the scriptures say that he had no father, no mother, no genealogy, we go mystically, wow, God must have made him materialize out of everything. No, 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 no. That's not what it's saying. Because if you wrote that to Hebrew people, they would say, well, if we don't know who his mum and dad is, he can't be a priest. He can't be a priest. Who is this guy? 
If he has no genealogy, we, we, we can't trust that this guy should be a priest. There are rules about this stuff, you know. We, we, we can't believe this. In fact, you know what? If you open the Gospels and you start at the very beginning of the New Testament, one of the things that you'll see in the book of Matthew, it's the first chapter, and most of you don't read it, you skip over it, because it's the lineage of Jesus. And he was the father of and the father of them, father of. And don't you do that? You just go, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, now, now I'm going to start to read. Oh, and Mary had a baby. Wow. And so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how many of you just sit there and read that every time? Like, no, no one goes through that and says, wow, wow, wow. It's, it's actually kind of interesting, right? He does it in the book of Matthew. He also does it in the book of Luke. Actually, if you look at them and you compare them both, they look different. That's because one followed Mary's line and one followed Joseph's line. But they both went back to David eventually because they knew that the Messiah had to come from the lineage of David. And he had to do that in order to be that priest. So genealogy is very important. When they say Melchizedek doesn't have genealogy, they're not saying that he just materialized out of nothing. They're saying, we don't even know who this guy was. See, what we read as things that are like almost mystical and, and interesting, right, is actually just came across to the Hebrew readers as very negative. We think it's amazing. They think it's negative. They see it totally different to how we would read it. The scriptures will often do this where they use a type of something to explain something else. Oftentimes what God will do is he'll use a negative type of something and show how he can redeem it for his purpose. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, if you're a Christian or you're Jewish, one of the terms that you might be familiar with is Mount Zion. It's a very holy uh, name, very holy place, very well known. And yet it might surprise you to know that Mount Zion was the name of a pagan fort in Jerusalem for a thousand years before it took on its holy meaning towards Christ for Christians and for Jewish people. Well, that's kind of interesting to me. In fact, Jesus, oh God, oftentimes will redeem things that are negative. Did you, did you know that the word redeem in the original Hebrew language means to restore, restore something to its originally intended and created purpose? And God does this with people. God does this with places. He does it all the time. Let me give you another example. If you read the Bible in, the, in Genesis in the beginning, you see that it was the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve and they took the fruit from the, from the tree of knowledge and good and evil and they sinned and the rest is history, right? But, but really, uh, serpents and snakes didn't really exactly have the best reputation. That's why, by the way, John says to all the Pharisees in, in, in the Gospels, he says, you brood of vipers, right? You know what he was saying? He was saying, your dad's a snake, a.k.a. your dad's the devil, you've got problems, right? That's why he said it. Serpents are bad. And yet, when Israel were being attacked in the desert and snakes were biting them, they make a bronze snake. And if they look at that symbol of that bronze snake, they would live. It's interesting how God can take something that resembles death and he can turn it into a symbol that means life. If you, if you read the scriptures, here's another thing that's interesting. The Persian king Cyrus when Isaiah the prophet wrote about him, he wrote about him as my shepherd in capital letters because God worked his grace through Cyrus, King Cyrus, to actually protect the Jewish people. We see this again. If you look at the cross, you know, some of you guys, you like to wear a, maybe a, a cross around you because it's a symbol of your faith. But if you had have worn that thing in Jesus' day, they'd think you were nuts because 
The cross is a symbol of torture and punishment and shame. And you wear it around your neck neck as a symbol of hope because of everything that Jesus did for you on the cross. You see how God constantly takes things that are negative and he redeems them and shows you how can you can see a better version of it. God does this with people. We look at people in the New Testament that are sinners. Many of the people that are in this room, you and me, the one thing that we have in common, I already told you, is that we are not perfect. Why? Because we have sin in our life. Good news for you. God will redeem you and use you and make you righteous. And it has nothing to do with what you do and everything to do with what he did on the cross. God is in the business of redeeming things that look like death and negativity. And he says, watch what I can do with this. I'm telling you right now, we serve a pretty amazing God. And so you start to see God is able to redeem negative types for positive reasons. We don't even have time to read this, but if you read on in Hebrews chapter 7, in verse 6, it says that Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek. And you're like, well, there it is. He paid tithes to him, you know? Of course he did, because a tithe is 10%. And in that example, uh, you know, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, is trying to illustrate this very important point, was that in that example, Melchizedek was the king, and so he was superior over Abram, which is why Abram gave him 10% following the custom, the law of the land. He gave him 10%. Why? Well, because he was the king. And he had to give it to him if he was going to follow the local Arab custom. And so that makes sense. And he's trying to explain to them, hey, I know you think this guy Melchizedek had some problems. We don't know his genealogy. And he called himself the, this, this priest, or, or this king of righteousness and, and of peace and, and God of, uh, you know, the, of the most high God. But, but everything that he wasn't, they would have understood what that term meant, the, you know, the God most high and possessor of heaven and earth. Everything that the Hebrews think that he wasn't, he said is completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Where this guy Melchizedek, he was like a negative version of what God had actually accomplished in Jesus Christ because Jesus is the true priest and king. And I started to read this and I started to think, you know what? If I start to look at that thing called tithing and I start to go, does is that example in Genesis of tithing to Melchizedek, is that an example of the tithe that we should be applying today, but I began with that idea, and the more I read, the more I started to depart from that kind of thinking, and I thought, you know what? Honestly, to me, he just looked like a pagan king that declared himself king of righteousness, lived in Salem, which is where the peace thing comes from. He has no genealogy. We don't know who he is. He worshipped Baal because he used the term that was commonly named for Baal, and so I don't think that that is a great example of the first tithe. Now, if that's not a great example of the first tithe, that means that we can't take that example and carry that all the way forwards into the New Testament for today because it doesn't make sense. So then we go, hang on, if, it's not that, if that's not the tithe, then it needs to be under the law. And if it's under the law, does it make it through? Because remember, there's three types of law. There's God's moral law that is eternal and goes all the way through the cross, but there is the civil and the ceremonial law. Does that make it through? And I thought, you know what would be really great if Jesus just had something to say about tithes? Well, we're in luck because he does, right? And if you read the scriptures, it's got a version of it in Luke and in Matthew, and they are basically two accounts of the exact same conversation, and I'm going to read it to you right now. So if you look at Matthew chapter 23 and look in verse 23, it says this, Woe to you! Now, Full disclosure, Jesus is in the middle of a smackdown, okay? 
he's in the middle of a bunch of woes. And you know who's getting the woes? The Pharisees, okay? So he says, woe to you Pharisees, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, when he says you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, to me, it's almost like he's drawing a divide between justice and mercy and faithfulness, which I would say would be God's moral law. And he says, wait, you're all about the tithing, the dill, and that you're tithing out of your spice rack, guys. You're so serious about tithes, but the other stuff that's really important, aka God's moral eternal law, that's the stuff that you're ignoring. And you've got to start to read this and think, why were they so intense about tithing out of their spice rack? You know, that doesn't make sense. Well, let me explain it to you. When they did not obey God's word, they were eventually taken off into exile. They went into exile and were ruled by other nations. Eventually, the nation of Israel emerged out from underneath that rule and they made a decision when they emerged out from captivity that they were never going to repeat the same mistakes again. They said, we need to be really serious about what we do here. So, they couldn't even understand the scriptures that were written because many of them had been in captivity for so long, they actually spoke the language of their captors and not the language that the scriptures were written in. So they needed people to interpret the word and they transcribed the word of God and they were very serious about doing it. They did it very well, but they also said, we need to better understand this thing called the law because if we can understand it better, maybe we'll have more of a hope of following it and obeying it. So they wrote commentaries. I can actually go to the bookstore right now and buy a commentary on the New Testament. I wouldn't put a commentary up there with the Word of God. I'd treat them as completely separate. One's the inspired Word of the Holy Spirit, and, and it's written by men, but, but you know, authored by God. And the other one is a book that a guy wrote to help me understand what's written in his Word. What they did is they took these two books. It was called the Mishnah and the Talmud. And they elevated the status of these two commentaries to be equal, basically, to the Word of God. And so in the commentaries, it said, hey, you've got to tithe out of your spice racks, which is why the Pharisees are doing that in the New Testament, but we never read a thing about it in the Old Testament. Because if you go all the way back to the scriptures that I gave you at the very beginning, it didn't tell them to do that at all, because what was the tithe? It was simply the harvest that came from the land. And they didn't even tithe on the entire thing. They didn't tithe on the bits that they left around the fringes of the property, only what they took. And so he said to them, you Pharisees, you're such hypocrites. You know what? You tithe out of your spice rack. You think you're so serious about the law, but you know what? You forgot to love people. You forgot, you forgot the point of everything. You know, if we're going to summarize the, the law, is it not to love God and love people? And he said, you know what? You're all about loving God and, and tithing. And, and you think that that's so the ceremonial parts of the law. You celebrate that publicly and you think that that's so important, but you're hypocrites because you are neglecting the things that are more important to God. And you know, as I start to read this and start to see it, I, I realize that what he's saying is you have a priority issue, Pharisees. You know, I started to look at the New Testament with fresh eyes and say, hang on, what did the New Testament do? How did they model it? Because there's got to be something in what they did that could teach us how we're supposed to live for today. And, you know, as I started to read that, here's a couple of things that I noticed that when they gave, they didn't just give 10%, they gave everything. 
They gave everything they had. In fact, if you read about the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, one of the things that you'll see is they were, they were bringing the, the, the title to their properties and laying them at the apostles' feet. They said, hey, don't, don't just have 10%. Like, have everything. Take it all. Full disclosure, they thought Jesus was probably going to come back in a couple of months. So they didn't really care too much about stewardship. Who cares what we do tomorrow? By the time this cash runs out, Jesus will come back and life will be sweet. Well, they were wrong. And for 2,000 years, people have been saying, Jesus is about to come back. Your grandma says, Jesus is really about to come back, right? And people keep saying it, but he's not back yet. And so my point to you is we should live realizing that tomorrow we need a steward today, what we need for tomorrow, but we should carry the heart that they had, which is I'm going to give everything I can to you. I'm going to give everything I can to your cause, to your kingdom. And the pattern that is modeled to the New Testament church is seen best in the person of Jesus Christ himself. Because what Jesus did is he didn't say, hi, I'm just going to give you part of me. He says, I'll give you all of me. I'll give you my whole life. I'll give you everything I have. When God sent Jesus from heaven to earth, he gave everything. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him shall never perish, but have eternal life. God gave everything when he gave us Jesus. He held nothing back. Do you know the number 10? Do you know numbers have different meanings in the Bible? Number ten, uh, seven is like, you know, this number of perfection, you know, and, and then you go to number 10, it's the number of completeness or, or fullness. And, and what the tithe meant is I'm giving my all. I'm giving everything that I've got. And Jesus took that to a whole nother level when he decided to give his life for his people. So I start to look at the tithe system and I start to think, can we, take not the whole tithe because that wouldn't make sense but separate out just the first tithe and apply that as a principle in the new testament to support the church you know what i I realize this it's really hard to do in fact if i was going to be honest with you i don't think you can do it the more i read it i i I just I i don't think you can do it but the new testament model is something that's so much greater than that you know the new testament model is like not that you can get away with not giving. In fact, if you see how extreme they were about that, I start to read this, these scriptures and I see what the early church did. They gave and they gave till they had nothing left. I start to read about the Macedonians. And if you don't know what the Macedonians did, then jump on our podcast and listen to last week's message because that's why I preached it. The Macedonians that were poverty stricken with nothing to give, they said, oh, would you just let us give? And Paul was like, are you kidding me? You guys have got nothing. They said, if you would just let us give, it would mean so much to us. And it says that they found overflow and abundance in poverty. They gave and they had nothing. And they said, I'll give you everything that I've got. You know why? Because they first gave themselves to God. And when you give yourself fully to God, all other giving becomes pretty easy. You know why? Because you think this is a message about money. It's not a message about money. It's a message about your heart. And the more you give your heart to God, the easier it is to give everything else after that point. I read about the Corinthians and what they gave. I read about the New Testament church and they gave what they had. They gave everything they could because this thing called the gospel fully consumed them. They realized how powerful this message was and how this message would shape the world. And they said, we don't want to give just 10%. 
We'll give everything that we have to it. And this to me is the fulfillment of the scripture where he says, I will take out of your heart, I will take out of you a heart of stone and I will give my people a heart of flesh. I will write my law on their hearts. In in other words, you won't say, what do I have to do? You'll say, what do I get to do to build this thing? What can I do to help? Where could you use me and my skills and my talents, my ability and my money and everything that I've got? I will lay it all down at your feet. Jesus, you gave everything for me. The least I can do is the same back. So I give you all of me. This is the model that I see. Paul said it this way. He said, you know what? When you give, in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, when you give, let it be systematic and let it be regular. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2 says this. Paul, this is Paul giving them instructions. He says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something or to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, because we all prosper differently. As he may prosper so that no collecting, well, there is no collecting when I come. Listen to what Paul is saying. Get your heart around this right now. Corinthian church, when I come to you, I don't want to have to ask you for a thing. I shouldn't need to. If you get this thing called the gospel, if you understand this message, if you knew everything that Jesus had done for you, when I come to you, I shouldn't have to ask you for a thing because there should be such a transformation in your mind and in your heart that when I come to you, you say, here's what we're giving There will be no collecting when I come. I'm not taking a thing from you. Whatever you offer, that's up to you. But I'm not going to take anything from you. What are you going to give? There is no collecting. I don't want to do that. You should start planning for this. Be strategic. Start planning. Start setting it aside. Start to structure it. Well, what am I going to give? Well, what resource do I have? And how am I going to begin to take that and, and give that to the church? How how will I help? How can I contribute? I want to finish with this story. I told you that when I was, you know, 21, I, I came back to church. And by the time I was 22, my life had started to change. And I began to look back over the decisions that I'd made in my past. And I realized that there was a lot of things that I'd done that I was concerned would have fallout in my life. I thought, this life that I live, it's going to catch up with me somewhere eventually and and I can take you to the exact spot on Manchester Road in Moorabark where I prayed this prayer I'm driving in my car and I said to God Lord if you can save me from my own decisions from the things that I've done if you can save me you can have me that prayer is one of the most life defining prayers I have ever prayed in my life and the reason was is because I knew what I meant I am regularly reminded that I gave myself to God on that day I'd already asked him into my life I'd already received salvation and 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 forgiveness for my sins and that day I said God if you can save me you can have me and to me I realized that you know what God you can have I said these things I said you can have 
all of my money. You can have all of my time. I was, at that point, I honestly believed I had no skills, no talent, no ability. I said, God, what little, if I have any skills, talent, or ability today, I'm giving it to you. And if I give you my time, my, my, my abilities, if I give you my money, God, I, I give it all to you. I literally said this prayer. I said, do what you can with it because it's all yours. If you can save me from the life that I created for myself, I give you 100% of me. And you know what I think? I think that's the response that we're supposed to have. I love you so much. I refuse to withhold even one thing from you. I give you 100% of me. I'm not going to give God 10%. I'm not saying that you necessarily shouldn't. If you want to do it, go ahead and knock yourself out. But I'm, I'm saying to you that you can't just give 10% and tick a box and say, there it is, I've done it. That's not what God's interested in. He wants you. He wants all of you. He gave everything he had to save each and every one of you. I think that what he's looking for is people that say, I will at least give you the same back. I will give you all of me, not 10%. You can have all of me, have 100% of everything that I do. So, so what do I do? What do me and my wife do? Because we talk about this. Well, the truth is, I tithe. I tithe because I give 10%. That's a good round number. I like 10%. It's a good starting place. But I promise you this, we give so much more than 10%. Because every time there's an opportunity to sow financially into the kingdom, we will show up at that moment. Every time there's an opportunity to give more of my time to build God's kingdom in some way, I will give him my time. And every time I've ever felt tired, like I'm not sure if I've got much left to give this day, I will give him all of my talent. And I'll say, God, if I give you my time, my talent, and my treasure again, God, would you do something with it that I could never do with it on my own? I give you every single part of me. Yeah, I tithed 10%, but our giving financially to this church is so much more than that. The truth is, is that my tithe is totally swallowed up in this thing called generous giving grace giving that's and that's what we do some of you some of you might be hardcore tithers to to the day you die and if you want to do that just god bless you we'll still receive your 10 percent, however you want to give it right but i'm telling you i just you know when i read the scripture this is the way that i read it and this is what I sort of think about it. But just don't ever do this. Don't just give 10% and think that's enough. There, you've got it. Because God wants all of you, not just some part of you. Some of you in this room right now, and the truth is you already know that you're not giving one cent financially to God. And if that's you and you're in this room today, I want to tell you that you are so welcome at Bright Church. You can come to this place. We will treat you no differently. We will love you. Just, I don't even know what, I don't know who gives what the truth is, right? So you will be treated the same as everyone else. We will love you and treat you 100% the same. And I tell you this, if you're in this room right now and you're starting to feel guilty, don't feel guilty. But if there's this sense of conviction in your spirit and you realize that that's the presence of God saying, hey, he's talking to you right now, maybe rather than feeling guilty, you should just make a change. Don't go home feeling guilty. Don't think about that. That's not what I want for you. That's not what God wants for you. But see this today as an opportunity to change what you're doing and start a fresh life. I'm going to finish with this one thing. Generous giving is easy after you've surrendered your heart. You think it's a message about tithing and giving. It's actually a message about your heart. I want you to stand to your feet. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. 
We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.